morning. Uh, as Bridget said, my name is Kyle. I'm the lead pastor of the Irvine campus of Mariner's Church. So uh, we have campuses like five of them now. One happening in Santa Ana pretty soon uh, across Orange County. So it's an honor for me to be here with you guys today. Um, I get to conclude. Thank you. You're, yeah, uh, I get to wrap up Beautiful Mess, which I'm excited about. I, I have been married this month. I have been married 16 years, which is kind of a big deal. I've, I'm pretty proud of that. Um, 16 years ago, made the decision to get married, which is awesome. And every, every year around our anniversary holiday, my wife and I take some time and we start looking back at just sort of the big defining moments. And there's so many awesome things you get to look back at and see how God provided and what he did. Uh, somebody once said that marriage is your masters in character development, which is absolutely true because there's also some difficult things that you walk through in marriage, right? One of those being kids. Uh, they, the same person said that kids are your doctorate. And so we have four, I have four doctorates. I'm like that smart when it comes to kids. So, uh, but one of those seasons for me was actually really difficult because we had our first three kids. They're all about 17 months apart. And so it was like triplets the hard way. I mean, it was crazy around our house. Um, and so I, you know, I'd be at work all day and it, you know, works difficult and fun, but also just weighty come home and have to work even harder, you know, and Holiday is just juggling babies and kids, and none of them can talk, and all of them are in diapers, and it was just crazy town for a long time. And in that season, I remember at one point, you know, she and I are just kind of chewing on each other about stuff, and I need this, and I can't help it. I'm like, I have no energy. I can't do anything. How do you think I feel? So, you know, go to the garage and get me some paper towels or something she asked me to do. So I go to the garage and I remember opening the door, and the garage door was open and seeing my car, and I literally have this thought, I think, I should just get in the car and drive away and never come back. <laughs> and that was a serious thought, and, you know, it's, I can laugh about it now, and so can she, but it was startling to me that I would even have that thought. Because seven years earlier, when I said yes, and I do, and made this commitment and decision to be married, that was the last thing I thought I would ever ever think, even in the context of marriage. And so, you know, you start to think, well, well, how did we make it through that? Why didn't I leave? Why did I stay? Some of you are thinking, why is he telling us this story right now? <laughs> I believe in these last eight weeks of this beautiful mess series, some of you have made profound decisions relationally. Some of you have made choices to trust differently, to lean into things differently. And I want those decisions to go far beyond just a moment in time. And so today, we are going to look at the three foundational qualities that will allow you to move through life and become the kind of person God designed you to be in the first place. And I am excited. If, if some of you, you know, may have missed some of the series, or some of you, you may be here for the first time thinking, I just walked in here. Uh, I'm really excited for you, because you're going to get the essence of the gospel and the whole Bible. You're going to understand who God is and who he created you to be. And how do you actually walk in that and live it out? And some of you made these decisions. You're going to get a chance to cement that transformation and find out how do you move forward in those desperate moments in life. And for all of you, we're going to get the chance that if you've never said yes to Jesus, to fully trusting him with your whole heart and whole life, I'm going to give you an opportunity to say yeah. I'm going to give you an opportunity to say I commit to that. I want to be that kind of person. So let me pray for us as we get started. Father, today we are grateful for who you are. Uh, we acknowledge that you are already at work. You're already at work because we're here. These people are here. And God, they're not here by accident. They're here and you're speaking to them. And so we thank you for that. 
I pray that your voice will be the loudest voice in their life, even as we journey through this morning together. I believe that there's things that you want to change, and there's things that you want to heal. There's freedom that you want to unleash and unlock in their lives. And God, there are some disciplines that you want us to hold to differently because we're here today. And so I pray that you would aim our hearts at you in the midst of this. Help us to be courageous in listening and following. And we pray this in the power of your name. Amen. We're going to get started in Romans chapter 5, so you can flip over there. We're going to hop all over today. So uh, lots of the passages are on your outline, and they'll be on the screen as well. But Romans chapter 5, the first four verses, 1 through 4. It says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Here comes the good stuff. Now, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Our first quality is tucked away in this passage. We all understand suffering. I don't need to spend a lot of time on it, right? As we move through life, there are just painful things, painful things that happen to us just because of the evil of this world and the fallenness of man. And there's things that we do that create suffering in other people's lives. We get suffering. There's choices we make that even impact our own life that create suffering. So we see that. But I like this because... It gives us the ability, it gives us the key to actually leverage suffering into character and hope. So our first quality, what do you see? Perseverance. Perseverance. We define it as crashing through the quitting points of life. Perseverance is crashing through the quitting points. And we see anyone can live as we move through life. Anybody can live in the high points of relationships in life. You know, go back to the, I've been married 16 years, and you think about, I think about the beginnings of that relationship, and all of us have experienced kind of what that looks like. You know what I mean? This willingness to stay awake all night just talking on the phone, and what'd you do today, and whispering, and oh, yeah, man, I'll see you tomorrow. I'd stay up all night talking. I will not stay up all night talking to my wife anymore. (laughs) You are crazy. Like, we have a curfew. It's like 10 o'clock, no more talk. You know, it's like at that point, things just seem to go really bad after 10 o'clock. But early on, it's like, man, I'd stay up all night just to be with her. And so it's like we get the euphoria of relationship. I see it with my kids. You know, it's fun watching them sort of even develop new friends and new relationships. You know, everybody, every stranger is, you know, every, every little kid stranger is just a, a friend they haven't met yet. And so they're so welcoming and all that. And, and the new friend is always like the most fun. Hey, can I have a play date with that person? And we're like that. We get that. But anybody can live in that space. What happens is when you start having suffering in your life, when pain starts to come your way, and we see that what we really want out of life is we want to be the kind of people that have deep character. We all want to have great reputations. We want to be known as people of honesty and integrity, people that can be trusted, people that are loved and valued. That's character. That's what we want. And we want hope. We want to know that there's something that's going to see us through whatever we're experiencing in this world. We want to know that there's something even beyond this world. I mean, we're startled, right, by death and loss. And so we need hope that transcends. Perseverance is the pathway to character and hope. It says right here that everything we want is found on the other side of perseverance. So then the question would be, well, how do we live a life of perseverance? 
How do we find a way to crash through the quitting points? If you flip back uh, to Proverbs, which is right after Psalms, Proverbs 6, God gives us, shocker, a recipe on how to persevere. Proverbs 6, verse 6 through 11. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? Isn't that a great word, sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. There's only two ways to live in this passage, right? One way is to be a sluggard. Say it really loud. One way is to be a Isn't that fun? The other way is to be an an ant. And so he's saying, live like ants. And I read this and I'm like, really, an ant? Like, God, couldn't you be like a lion? Couldn't we be like tigers or something? He's like, no, be an ant. And I'm like, why would be an ant? And he gives it here uh, in the context of, uh, he says, ants are, are wise. And why are they wise? Ants know how to persevere. They know how to, how to find ways around things, how to do things, right? You ever watch, you guys play with ants when you were kids? Ever watch kids play with ants? Other than burning them with magnifying glasses, <laughs> what is like the second most fun thing to do with ants? If there's a long line, I, I know that my kids, here's what they generally tend to do. They tend to put things in front of them. Did you guys ever do that? You know, they're just cruising along, along, and they just sort of what? They kind of pile up on each other for a second, like, oh, wait, and then their antennas go crazy. And then, I mean, you could put a 20-foot-long tree in front of them, and what do they do? They find a way around. And they always come right back to where they were, and then they just keep going on the path they were supposed to do. That's what God's saying. He's saying, consider, be like an ant. Be like an ant. Be wise. Find a way. And find a way different than what you may think. So the other insect I guess we could compare it to is like a fly. Don't be like a fly. What do we see about flies? Flies that get like locked in your house, what happens? Ding, ding, ding. They just sort of they just bounce into the window over and over, right? And you go, what are you thinking? And they get like a big run and they just smack right against the window. And then they kind of stun themselves and, you know, flip over on their back and then they find a way up. Flies are are dumb. Because they just keep doing the same thing over and over and smacking into the, the insanity, right? Same thing over and over. Expecting something different, and it's not. He's saying, don't be a sluggard. Don't be, an, don't be a fly. Be an ant. Find a way around. You know, live like ants. And the second thing is, don't be mean. There's a story about a rancher who had a bunch of deer. Okay, and deer, we've seen them, especially the males, big, huge antlers and everything, and it's awesome because you watch those guys. Have you ever seen deer collide? It's like, and I just go, oh, they're going to die. Something's going to break. It's unbelievable, the collisions. And what happened was this rancher, they discovered that in the antlers of deer was like if you ground it up into a powder, it would be like an aphrodisiac. People want aphrodisiacs. may be surprising to you. And when people want something, what does that do? Money. There's money behind it. So he starts saying, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to start grinding the antlers down on these deer. And he started cutting them off, grinding them up, and he was making tons of money. But here's what he noticed. The size of the deer and the size of the herd started shrinking. And he's like, what's going on? What's the problem? So he had a guy come in and fix it out. And here's the deal. Antlers with deer, it gives them a way, gives them a way to fight. 
gives them a tool, you know what I mean, to sort of collide and find their way through. When he took all the antlers off, they couldn't do that. So you know, you know who won the fight? You know who became the king of the herd? The meanest deer. Not the best one, not the most powerful one, the meanest one. So why did I tell you that story? Because I know who wins the fights at your house. Whoever's the meanest. The meanest deer wins. I know who wins the fights at my house when that's the way we charge at stuff. The meanest person. I know that when I get into an argument with my wife, I get to make a choice. You see, antlers are, are tools for communication. Antlers are a way to sort of communicate and fight and find your way through. I always tell people, well, how do I know if I should get married? I say, find somebody you can fight with. And what I mean is find somebody you can fight with. Find somebody that you're committed to fighting through any issue that ever comes up in your marriage and finding a way through. And that's what deer do. But when you take it all down and you just become mean, you never find your way through. I do that. I become oftentimes in conversations with my wife, I'll become like an attorney. And I'll put her on trial or the issue. You know what I mean? Well, that's not what you said three minutes ago. What you said, well, I meant this. I don't care what, what you said. What, you know, anybody do that? Or is that just me? Right. I can get mean that way. My wife can get mean too. You know what she does? Rolls her eyes. You know, the little faces and stuff and just in the kitchen shaking her head in disgust or whatever. And I'm like, really? You know, and then I just get mean. Live like ants. Find a different way. You gotta have tools for communication too. You can't be mean. That's the way you gotta persevere. You gotta find your way through. You gotta crash through the quitting points of life. Because what are the costs, sluggard? What are the costs? Poverty and scarcity. And I feel like many times we settle relationally. We settle relationally for poverty and scarcity. We settle for something less than. We settle for isolation. We settle for just slowness. We settle to just fold our hands and give up and quit and shrug our shoulders and roll our eyes and believe there's no way out. There's no way around. There's no way through. And then poverty comes and scarcity comes. There's no way through in that. You're going to die. You're going to become a sluggard. I believe that's one of Satan's greatest tools is to get us just to slow down and to stop. Either to get us to try like the fly where we just keep smashing into each other or into windows or to get us just to slow down and to stop. And here, God's saying, be like the ants. Persevere. Crash through the quitting points. Find a way. Learn wisely. Learn to do things differently so you can find a way through that God wants you to do. So today is the day. And what might that look like for you? in your journey? What would it look like? Where's there an area in your life maybe you've started slowing down, just settling like a sluggard? Poverty, scarcity is kind of setting in. God's saying, hey, I want you to persevere. I want you to lean in. I want you to crash through that obstacle that's in front of you. I want you to find a way around it different than you have before. What would it look like? The second quality we see it's one of the most um, startling aspects of Christ and people who follow Jesus because the world just doesn't understand it. You'll see it on your outline. And that's the word forgiveness. It's the idea of forgiveness. First thing we have to have is the ability to persevere. The second thing we have to have is we have to have the ability to forgive. I mean, we started in Romans 5. We see that suffering is a part of life. 
There's going to be pain as we move through life, pain that's inflicted upon us by the world, and there's going to be pain that we do to others and even to ourselves through the own choices that we make. And so we have to have the quality, the ability to forgive. The first thing is when pain happens to us, we get hurt by others. When relational breakdowns take place, how are all the ways that we can get hurt relationally? Throw some out. Lies. Hmm? Name calling. What? Yeah, ignoring. You isolate. What else? Anger. Blame. Right? Abuse. Abandonment. Guilt. There's all kinds of things that are done to us as we move through life that create huge amounts of pain. And so, what are we going to do with that? There's only a couple choices. The first way is to respond maybe the way that sort of is at the core of all of us, and that's just our human nature. It aims us, and when these things happen to us, I don't know about you, but my first response is to retaliate. I'm going to show you whatever that means. I'm going to get back at you. I'm going to inflict pain back upon you for whatever you did to me. Whatever pain you think you can give me, I'm going to give it back to you. We can deny We can pretend or minimize that it didn't hurt as much because somehow that would be giving them too much power. So it's like, oh, no, no, that didn't hurt. I'm okay. When really inside, we're just dying. We blame. We isolate. You know, we minimize. We damage. There's all these things we do. The only way to have a relational breakthrough in those moments is to forgive. The only way. It's God's way. Look at what he taught us in Matthew 18 about forgiveness. Verse 21, it says, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me, who creates pain in my life? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. So we learn a couple things. Number one, Jesus is good at math, right? (laughs) 10 times right there. But then here's the thing. He wanted to drive this point home, and whenever Jesus really wanted to drive something home, what he'd often do is tell a story. So he goes on to tell this story, and he says, let me tell you, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like a king, and he's got all these servants, and he decided he wanted to settle accounts with his servants, and there's a particular servant who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. Now, this is Jesus in his day, 10,000 bags of gold. So this is billions of dollars, and clearly this guy is a servant. He's not another king, so do you think he can repay this? No, there's not a chance. And so the king knows that. He calls him before me. He says, so here's what I'm going to have to do. You, your children, your wife, everybody, I'm going to sell you all your possessions, everything you have. I'm going to sell it all, get what I can, and then you're going to have to live in prison for the rest of your life to pay your debt. And so what did this guy do? He falls on his knees. He says, be patient with me. I'll pay back everything. There's no way he can pay back everything. He can't possibly earn his way back. And so it says that the master, the king, he took pity on him. And he doesn't reduce the debt. He doesn't cut it in half. He doesn't, you know, say, well, give me 20%. He cancels it completely. Totally forgives billions of dollars worth of debt this guy could never repay. What do you think that guy felt like? The emotion, the freedom. It's like, oh, my gosh, this is incredible. You can imagine how he walks out of there going, you can't believe this. We're going to get to be together. We're going to have to sell everything. But then he comes across somebody who owes him It says, a few coins, pennies. What does he do? Grabs him by the throat. 
He says, you didn't pay him back. And he says, I can't believe this. And he has this guy thrown in jail for a few pennies right after the king and forgiven him everything. So what do you think the king does? Verse 32. The master calls this servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled the debt, um, all that debt of yours, because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? couple things. The first thing that, that we learn in that exchange with Peter and Jesus at the beginning is, how far does forgiveness extend? You see, Peter at this point, remember, he's a follower of Jesus. And so in his day, to forgive somebody seven times would have been like heroic. I mean, it would have been like astounding. And so he thinks, I'm pretty good, huh, Jesus? If I forgive seven times, and what does Jesus do? He's like, you're kidding, right? And he comes up with this giant number. What Jesus is saying is, there is no end to forgiveness. There's no boundaries on it. There's no conditions to it. There's no end to forgiveness. And the other thing that's startling about this passage is, when do we truly understand forgiveness? Do we understand forgiveness when we're forgiven? And the answer is, No. We understand forgiveness when we forgive. You think about that servant. He didn't understand forgiveness. He was forgiven a billion dollars. But did he get it? No. Because the first thing he does is go choke a guy who owes him pennies. And he's saying, you've totally missed it. You'll never understand forgiveness until you do what? Forgive somebody else. And there's a cost to it. I get that. I mean, lots of us are sitting in this room saying, Kyle, you don't understand, which is another way of saying, God, you don't understand the things that have been done to me. You don't understand the kind of pain and suffering I've been through. And here's what I'm saying, only because Jesus is saying, and he's saying, I actually do understand. And I grieve that with you. But the only way you will ever fully understand my forgiveness and love for you is if you forgive. Because there's no end to it. There's no end to it. And there's a huge cost of letting people go, of turning them loose, setting them free. We lose our sense of control and ability to hold on to things, hold on to them, thinking we've got them captive. And he's saying, turn it loose. You've got to forgive. We know, too, that um, forgiveness isn't just about what's done to us. It's about what we do to other people, right? Because we're hurt, and we know that hurt people hurt people. That's just part of life. And so there's relational breakdowns where we commit all of these same kinds of things. You think about name-calling and lies. You think about cutting corners. You think about anger. You think about lashing out. I don't know about you, but those are all things I just can look in a mirror at and go, yep. I've lived in all those spaces. And oftentimes it's funny because the way I want to mitigate those is uh, kind of the same way I want to mitigate the pain when somebody sort of hurts me, whether deny and minimize. So I don't fully own what I did to somebody else, the way I made them feel. Well, it couldn't have been that bad, really. Or I want to hide. Man, I got to just avoid them because I feel horrible. There's no way I can say. Or I want to blame Well, it's not really my fault. I'm just living this out because somebody did damage to me. There's all kinds of ways we shade it. 
But God's way is this profound um, way to actually live in forgiveness. And it's just confession, repentance, and reconciliation. The first thing he says, confession. Confess with God. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us completely. And I love this because it says confess the sin. And a lot of times, I don't know about you, but when I hurt other people, I can confess and say, I am so sorry. What I'm saying sorry for is I'm so sorry I got caught. When I was a kid, I would become very good at saying, ah, I'm so sorry. And what I was saying sorry for was, I'm sorry for the consequences of the decision that I made. But what God's saying is, you have to be sorry for the sin. Own it. Confess it. Live in it. I see this all the time with my kids. One of the things we want to build into kids, right, is the idea that, you know, kids have this amazing way to, oh, sorry. It's like, whoa, wait, wait, I'm sorry. I don't think you really mean that. Right, And so we aim them back. I need you to go say, I'm, I'm sorry, say what you're sorry for. I'm sorry that I wasn't a good listener. I'm sorry that I stole your truck. I'm sorry that I hit you in the face. I'm sorry that I stabbed you in the neck with a pencil. Whatever it might be. So, But it's like, say you're sorry for what? Thinking that somehow that's going to help them metabolize it and own it a little more. We see it profoundly. And this is what God is saying. Confess those things to me because that's where you're going to find what? You're going to be totally clean. You're going to find freedom. You see, sin is suffocating in our life. It just isolates us. It it causes us to, like, hold our breath. And when we confess, what happens is it's like, it's this deep breath. (sighs) Okay, I can breathe again. I can breathe again. And it's not just with God. You know, he invites us and calls us to confess with one another, which is a really scary thing. I mean, it's a difficult thing with God, the creator of the universe. It's another thing with one another. But James says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for one another that you may be, what? Healed. That you might find healing. And that's why we live as a community of people. That's why Rooted and Life Groups is so important to us. Because we want to get in smaller groups of people where we can sit down. And what happens? It's staggering every single time. You start telling your stories. You start wrestling with some of these big questions. You start talking about some of the depth of, of the struggles that you're having or where you hurt people. And you tell that story and and, and somebody looks and goes, me too. Me too. I share that same pain. I share that same hurt. I share that same struggle. And then all of a sudden in that you find prayer for one another. You find the power of Jesus sort of coming in, even giving you the desire and willingness, the want to, to be different. Encouragement, accountability, it's where all of it is found. Confession and repentance and reconciliation. Repent, it's just the idea of I'm not going to do that again. My wife is not interested in I'm sorry unless it's followed up with the I really want to really live differently. You know what I mean? Because I'm just like my kids. You know, honey, I can't believe you didn't do this. I know, I'm sorry, honey. Flip chat. I don't, you know, she'll come in. I don't think you heard me. You really, and I'm like, I'm sorry. What she's interested in is, honey, I'm sorry that I did that to you. I totally own it. I don't want to treat you that way. I don't want our relationship to be marked by that. I don't like it when I don't value you. I will, I will do everything I can do to become better. That's repentance. It's an honest empathy for, I don't want to create that kind of life with my wife. 
And then reconciliation. Uh, how many people does it take to forgive? One. How many people does it take to reconcile? At least two, right? Based on what that is. Forgiveness is a non-negotiable. Forgiveness is a must. There is no end to it, and we only fully understand it when? When we forgive others. Reconciliation depends on two people. So the Bible is very clear. It says, to, to the extent that it depends on you, work hard to be at peace and unity with everybody around you. But that isn't always possible. And a lot of times we get that so twisted up in our world, we think that forgiveness and reconciliation are the same thing, and they're not. They're not. And so as we're moving through life, confession, repentance, reconciliation is a big deal as we move through. When you've been really hurt, abused, abandoned, must you forgive? Yes. Yes. Because that's when you're fully going to understand forgiveness. Must you reconcile? Not always. Not always. It's not always possible. If you're with somebody who just, you can forgive them and then they keep coming back and doing the same kind of damage over and over and over and over and over again in your life, must you forgive them? Yes. Can you really be reconciled to them? No. Whether it's a friend or a business partner, whether it's a relationship or a marriage, guys, you can't be a fly banging into the same window over and over. You got to persevere, crash through the quitting points. You got to be like the ant. You got to find new ways to get around issues. You must forgive because we are all million dollar debtors. We have inflicted so much pain in our own lives with our choices and in other people's lives. And so we have to work hard. Finally, the last thing is love. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13 says, And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Faith can be expressed in the receiving of forgiveness, believing that God loved us so much that he gave his only son, that if we believe in him, we will never perish and we won't die. Faith is expressed in believing that that's true, in receiving of forgiveness, and then what? Extending forgiveness. Hope, we found, it's in the forming of character, right? And the pathway to that character is? Perseverance. The pathway to character is? Perseverance. And so finally, the greatest of these three things, he says, is love. Love is the binding. It's the glue that sort of holds everything together. And as we've been going through the series, where we started at the very beginning is the very beginning. We found that it's our core identity because it says God is love. He is defined by love. He is the creator and author of everything. You were created and designed in love by a heavenly father who loves you. Ephesians 5 says it this way, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Let me ask you, is that the way you see God this morning? Is that the way you tend to move through life? See him as this loving heavenly father and is that the way you think he sees you this morning, as a dearly loved child? Or do you see him as like this judgmental, condemning, 
rigorous God, like a policeman or a judge who's just waiting to punish you because of what you've done. Over and over, this whole story is about a God, a heavenly Father, who loves you. He created you in his image. He gave you your skills, your gifts, your abilities, your personalities, everything. And he says, I simply want you to trust me. I simply want you to trust me, believe in me, so that you will fully understand how dearly loved you are as my child. A God who, I love this artwork. He has our artwork on his refrigerator, on his stage, in heaven, wherever that is. Like our artwork's there. Our really awkward junior high photos are on his fridge. Like he's like, oh, you guys are beautiful. I love that. But it's not just our core identity. It's also the way we're called to live. Ephesians says, walk in the way of love. Our model for that is Jesus. In Philippians 2, it says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Clearly, we see that this is an others-focused kind of life. And after this, we see the mindset of Jesus expressed profoundly in a couple things. The first one is this servant-minded humility. He's saying your whole life is so others-focused, you are constantly looking to serve people. Serve them. And this then sacrifice. And there's no end to the kind of sacrifice he invites us to, right? Because we know his sacrifice was ultimate. It was death. And I think about how small I'm willing to compromise. The things that I trade that away for in my relationship. I told you earlier we had a 10 o'clock curfew for, for conversations at my house with my wife. Remember that? So we violated that a couple weeks ago. Holiday, my wife violated that. And it just went bad. Yeah, I mean, it just goes bad after that. You know, she starts talking, and, and there's a ton of stuff she wanted to talk about and just a lot of weight she was carrying and things she wanted wisdom for. And I was done. I'm, like, so exhausted. I'm like, honey, do you understand what this week has been? I got nothing. And it's, like, 10, 15 now, and I'm getting more and more tired, and really what I want to do is just sleep, and really what she wants to do is just talk. And I'm like, you know what I can't do right now? Serve you. Because I'm not willing to what? Sacrifice sleep. How insane is that? So I'm finally in bed, and she's talking to me. So I do what every great husband would do. I grab my pillow, and I went to the couch. I know. And she followed me. (laughs) And it was not to pray for me. (laughs) And so for the next two hours, we locked antlers, baby. Um, But here's the deal, the tipping point in the conversation came when I saw my wife of 16 years standing in front of me in pain. And I turned a corner in my own heart and in my own mind and in my own spirit. And instead of being an attorney that that was putting her on trial, um, I saw my wife in pain and in sadness. And I listened And I'm like, how can I serve you? You want to stay? I'll stay up all night. I'll listen. I'll talk to you. How can I help? What can I do? And it changed everything. And instead of being suffocated by my own humanity and my own smallness, it's like both of us could breathe again. And it's like, this is what God wants. It's what he wants for me. It's what he wants for her. It's what he wants for all of us. 
And so I believe today, whatever decisions you've made in your life, through this series in the past eight weeks, wherever you sit today, whatever God's been stirring and saying to you, these qualities of perseverance and forgiveness expressed and bound by love, they're what's going to change everything. And here's the deal. We don't get there on our own. I couldn't get there on my own. You can't. You won't. And so I love the power of the church verse and what it expresses. Jeremiah 17 again. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes, and its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought, and it never fails to bear fruit. You know, the verses just prior to that, are, he paints a picture of what it looks like when we try and do it on our own human strength. And it talks about desert. It talks about wasteland. It talks about the dryness that you will experience. But here he says, when you trust in the Lord, when you put your full confidence in him, he will actually change your heart and your desires and your willingness to become what he wants you to be. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads just for a moment? And I just want to pause and I believe that for, for some of you, there, are, there is a big defining decision that you've made in the past eight weeks, maybe even this morning, and that is to fully trust and place your full confidence in Jesus. Maybe it's the first time that you said, Jesus, I'm going to trust you. I believe that you came, that you persevered, that you extended forgiveness to me. And I receive that, and I want to walk in it to become all that you've called me to be. If you've made that decision in this series, or if you've made that choice this morning, would you just stand wherever you're at so I can pray for you? Father, today, as your kids, your dearly loved children that you've created in your image, we acknowledge you as our Father. And God, we surrender completely, acknowledging that we are placing our trust, our confidence, our hope to even become the kind of people and live and walk out lives of perseverance and forgiveness and profound love because of your power within us. We pray this in the power of your name, Jesus. Amen. The elders are going to pass out um, communion. And we're going to celebrate and remember the gift of Jesus and the power of Jesus in our lives. And as you take it, just take a piece of bread and hold it. And the bread just represents the body of Christ. He called his disciples together and he says, I want you to, to remember me. 
I want you to remember that I was real, that I'm fully human, that I walked this earth, that I suffer just like you, that I was tempted just like you, that there's not emotion or pain that you walk through that I haven't experienced. And so I give my body for you. And then take a cup and hold that and just reflect on the truth of Jesus saying, this is my blood. Because you see, you're a million dollar debtor. There is pain that you've created and distance you've created from your heavenly father that you could never earn or pay back. And so Jesus says, I'm going to pay that. I'm going to pay the price so that you can breathe and rest in the forgiveness that I extend. So take that, hold it, reflect on it as we sing, and then we'll all, um, we'll all take it together.